Good morning. Good to see you all here on this beautiful, crisp morning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Choir rehearsal today at 5 o'clock. I suspect that's an important one, so put that high on your priority list. And then at 6, we'll be uh, gathering in the basement for our video series. Uh, and as usual, uh, finger foods to share. Christmas program. Uh, if you didn't get the memo, uh, here it is in black and white, scheduled for December the 22nd. And time to be announced. Do we have that? We'll have that tonight. We'll have that by tonight. So you'll you'll all be receiving that uh, either in person or in text, I presume. Will we have I cannot say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have my personal guarantee. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, so we're, we're narrowing down on the time. Um, Swartz Creek will not be here this year, and it'll be the Thornville Baptist Choir along with many specials. So as, no, as is our tradition, uh, after the program, we'll gather in the Fellowship Hall for refreshments. Uh, choir rehearsal will be Wednesday evening at 7, uh, again, and there'll be no uh, regular prayer service. See Andrea's number there, 
and thank you for being thankful in your giving. Number eight. Is there an eight that I've missed? <laughs> All right. Anything else? Our scripture for meditation is from Isaiah, chapter 9, read verses 1 through 7. Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. Tom, good to see you. <laughs> Would you open for us? Thanks.
you take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 520, 520 in the red. hymn today. Um, there is a, already a hymn picked out. I'm sorry, um, but that's just the way it is today. So <laughs> it, will you please turn to 194 in the Trinity. If you had a pick today, save it. We may get back to it next week. Maybe. We'll see. I can't promise though. <laughs> 194.
Scripture reading this morning is found in Hebrews, the seventh chapter, and we'll be reading verses 18 through 28, 1869 in the, Bible, in the Pew Bible. Hebrews 7, 18 through 28. Stand together. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for the sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Take your red hymnal again and turn to 196, 196.
Our scripture text is found in Hebrews 7, beginning at verse 18 and following. Last Lord's Day, we began a new series entitled, Unto You a Savior Has Been Born. And the first thing we learned about God's Savior and His salvation is that salvation is of the Lord, 100% from start to finish. By that, we listed three things. Number one, God alone planned salvation in the recesses of eternity past. That is, before there was such a thing as time. And he planned it without the input or help from his creatures, who did not even exist at that time. His plan was based on his understanding of what he had ordained and was wholly contained within his own understanding. No one informed him. Secondly, God alone implemented his plan who was to be saved by him, when they were to be saved, under what circumstances they would come to know Christ, and so on. It was all set down in the book of life, which again contains only those names on a ledger in God's own handwriting, written in red from a pen dipped in the blood of his only begotten son, who was the lamb slain from the creation of the world, Revelation 13, verse 8. Not an afterthought, but on purpose. Thirdly, we learn that God alone sustains his people. We were in the book of Jonah, and Jonah, the defiant prophet of God, a true believer, to be sure, but in rebel protest to the will of God, was as good as dead as he lay in the digestive tract of a monster fish. Yet rebellion and all, God listened to his contrite prayer, spared his life, reconstituted his commission, and brought salvation to the huge city of Nineveh in spite of Jonah's anger. We concluded by looking at the outworking of the truth that salvation is of the Lord. Any poor sinner can be saved. Scripture affirms nothing in my hands I bring. We sing it. Simply to thy cross I cling. Great doxology. The basis of all orthodoxy is that salvation is of the Lord. You go wrong here on this principle that salvation is of the Lord. And I would say only of the Lord. If you go wrong here, you will be wrong everywhere else in your theology. And boy, there's a lot of that out there. And then we concluded that if salvation is of the Lord, anyone who ends up in hell's fire and in damnation is of their own doing. You did it to yourself because you didn't come to Christ. Well, today's message deals with the extent the efficacy, we would say, of God's salvation as we consider Jesus as a Savior for all time and all sin. As we come, let's pray. 
Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Men are all always trying to find out how to be saved, if they have any religious inclinations at all. And they go to this, and they go to that, and they think of things in their own imagination. And they portray God in, in the way they want him to be, instead of taking at face value his word, where he tells us plainly how we can come to know God through his beloved son, the Lord Jesus. But people don't want to hear that. They want to hear that they're good, that their choices are right, that they're not as bad off as the next person down the pike. Anything to justify themselves and paint themselves in a way that in their mind, at least, is more favorable than the guy next to them. But we are sinners, Lord, saved by grace. By grace means we didn't deserve it, and we didn't do anything to earn it. You did it, and I pray that you'll help us to see that, believe it, trust it, and rejoice in it, that you get the glory, not us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at the subject this morning, a Savior for all time and all sin, speaking of Christ. The first point I'm bringing out today is that the people God saves come to him. The people that he saves come to him. In our last study, we discovered that God has written in the book of life, by name, those who shall be saved. No guesswork. This has to do with the decrees of God. And while we need to know about the saved, we, none of us, can live our lives in our time-space history by the decrees of God. What I mean by that is we do not live out our lives in accordance with what God has decreed In a sense that we can peek into those decrees. Yes, the decrees affect us and they are related to us. But we cannot peek into them. We cannot read them and understand them and then try to order our lives accordingly. No, the Bible does not approach us as little gods, but as mortals. And as mortals, the principle for living is stated by God himself. Many places in scripture, but the text I like most is Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, where Moses says to us, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. While the Bible speaks of God's decrees and we think of election and predestination, redemption and judgment and so on, nowhere are we invited to order our lives according to what we think we know about such things. These things are God's work And while these things affect us, we do not get to play God and second-guess Him. I might illustrate it this way. 
The teachings of the reformer John Calvin concerning election and predestination, the decrees of God, in other words, were then used by a number who became known as hyper-Calvinists. Hyper meaning above or going beyond. And their main error was to fashion their preaching on what they discovered about these decrees. Calvin did not do this. But some of his followers did. And the Baptists were not innocent in this either. How this worked out may be illustrated in the ministry of John Gill, predecessor to Spurgeon. Dr. Gill would preach to people uh, refusing to give. A general call to sinners to repent and to believe. Thinking as he did that the number of the elect is fixed by the decree of God. Faith and repentance are the gifts of God. So, here's the faulty logic. It's fruitless. It's a fruitless exercise to call sinners to Christ. Because God himself will see to it that the elect are saved. So any audience listening to Dr. Gill preach were never challenged to do anything because in his view, God's decrees sealed it all. Well, what Dr. Gill and all other hyper-Calvinists did and do was to ignore the doctrine of personal responsibility everywhere taught in Scripture and the accompanying truth, namely... That God has not only, listen now, he has not only decreed the salvation of the elect, but also the means by which the elect come to salvation. The means. What's the means? Repentance, faith, being convicted, seeking that you may find. None of this is attributed to sinners apart from God's enablement. That's true. But neither are sinners to sit passively on the sideline, bearing no responsibility for their own indifference and unbelief, especially in light of such clear commands in the Scripture. Let me give you some examples. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you, Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Or again, the Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry. He saves them. Psalm 145, verse 18 and 19. Or in Jesus' words, The time has come, he said, The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark Mark 1, verse 15. I want you to notice that all of these are general appeals. 
general appeals. The biblical prophets or preachers did not revert to their knowledge or belief in the decrees of God. See, so what do you mean by that? Well, they did not preach, come to God through Christ and be saved, but I know you won't come unless God has decreed it so. They never preached that way. They did not preach, believe in Jesus, but I know that faith is the gift of God only to his elect. They didn't preach that way. No, no. They did not go there. And they did not go out of, not out of deception, but they did not go there because to do so is to intrude into the secret things of God and to ignore the things that are revealed. I want you to observe now how the author of Hebrews speaks of the people who are saved by God in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 24 and following. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. The people whom God saves are people who come to him. The God to whom people must come is not the God of Islam, which does not have so much as one reference in the Quran to the word love or any concept of love. And yet, the Bible expressly states, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. First <coughs> John 4, verse 8. And in verse 14 and following, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And if anyone acknowledge, acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. You know, many religions in the world promise a God of man's own invention, but salvation is not to be found in any of them. God himself declares, for this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord. There is no other. Isaiah 45, verse 18. Or again, in Isaiah chapter 43. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Wow. I have revealed, I have saved, I have proclaimed. 
I, and not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 12. Wow. There was a time when the world at large was in the dark as to God's salvation because the Bible was not disseminated among all the people groups. But I want to tell you, there's no excuse for ignorance now. Not now. God says, I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. This is the only God who saves and to whom people must come for salvation. It isn't coming to church that saves. It isn't coming to ceremonies. It has nothing to do with prayers and rituals or lighting of candles. Pious chants. Mm. But coming to God alone as revealed in the Judeo-Christian scriptures. That's where you'll find salvation. Secondly, the people that God saves leave everything else behind. Hard for some people. Very hard. Coming to God implies coming away from other things. God is unique. God says so. He declares that there's no other. He therefore is not about to share the podium of divinity with lesser things. Salvation is not a partnership between you and God. Your task is not to come expecting to bring your thoughts, your ideas, your procedures with you as a viable contribution for your acceptance by God. The methodology of the world is this. Well, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. By which they mean, let's let's barter. Let's barter. We expect to give a little that we might gain a little. That's fair. We anticipate that salvation is something of a give-and-take contract. And we're shocked, and I think rather irritated sometimes, to learn from the scripture that God does not barter. He does not barter. He is not about to share the glory of salvation with us. God, as we view it, has the audacity to say to us, it's my way or the highway. Take it or leave it. Salvation that begins then is initiated and finally ends with God alone. So from, from beginning to end, the whole package is the work of God. Jesus gave the basic principle in his Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he said. I'll read it for you. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one 
love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, verse 24. And money here stands for more than the dollars in your bank account or in the stock market. It represents whatever it is that you treasure. Jesus put it this way elsewhere. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Matthew 6, verse 21. He is saying that you love what you treasure. Now, for some people, that is money. Paul put it this way, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. He said that to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. Now this is the dilemma many face. God and his kingdom. Or. Money. God and salvation. Or. Wealth. Now we protest. So we say, wait a minute, wait just a minute. Why can't it be both? Why can't I love God and love money? Because your heart, your love, is divided and compromised between the tangible and the eternal, between the things of this world and the things of eternity. And God is not about to give up first place in your heart so you can pamper the flesh with what money can buy for you. Idolatry, you see, if it is anything, idolatry is a replacement for the exclusivity of God. He says that he alone is God, but those who love money, or riches, whatever you want to say, attempt to prove him wrong through divided loyalty. But God refuses to play second fiddle in our band. Well, some, however, are not so enamored with money. Their treasure, their interests are in other areas. They don't love money, but they love family, or they love friends. What the family thinks, what the family desires, how they view life is more important than God and his salvation. In the classic Bunyan story of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian fled from the city of destruction, striking out on his own, leaving Christiana, his wife, and his children behind. Not because he did not want them to accompany him, 
but because after all of his persuasion and his honest warning that God's destruction was going to come upon their city, they were not convinced. They still wanted the things their city afforded them. The pleasures of sin. And they refused to go on the journey with him. Had he capitulated to their unbelief, he would have treasured them more than God. And in so doing, disobeyed the warning of Jesus, which is this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 26 and 27. Now when you read this, this is not a text. This is not a text telling us to hate our family members. Except by comparison to God. Because elsewhere we are taught husbands, what? Husbands, love your wives. I'm reading scripture. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5 verse 25. Where Paul told Titus to have the women who were older in the faith train, I'm reading scripture, train the younger women to love their husbands and love their children. Titus 2 verse 4. But Jesus' words have an irrevocable command backing them that when he says that if we do not hate our family members and carry his cross, we cannot be his disciples. That irrevocable command is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul. And with all your mind. And with all your strength. Mark 12 verse 30. Now let me tell you. There's room for only one love like that in your life. An exclusive love that dwarfs all other loves. The love of God is first and foremost because he is first and foremost. You know when you die. When you die you face God. Not family. You ever think about that? When judgment comes, love of family will not preserve your life. Our filial ties are part of this temporal existence. You will see in glory only those who, like you, have come to God through Christ. And when you see them, you will not relate to them in the same way as here. So where are you getting that? Let me read it for you. These are the words of Jesus. The people of this age, he's, re, he's speaking, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But mm, those who are considered worthy of taking part in that 
age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Luke 20 verse 34 and following. Believers, male or female, become the bride of Christ so that eternity as now will have no other gods before the Lord, no love larger to whom you are devoted. So when people come to God, they must of necessity leave behind anything else they have loved up to that point. Be it money or family or position or power or whatever. It is as Solomon aptly reported. Wise man Solomon said, Naked a man comes from his mother's womb. And as he comes so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hands. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 15. What I'm saying is that the people God saves leave everything behind. And then thirdly, those who come to God have access to God only through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Within context, the writer is making a contrast between the Old Testament priestly system and the new. You know, many religions of the world have copied the concept of priestly intervention without copying the essence of atonement. See, what do you mean by that? Well, Buddhism has priests, but only as supposed visionary spiritual teachers to teach people how to save themselves through enlightenment. They call it self-actualization. You need to come to know yourself. Hinduism has priests too, but there's a, there's a world of difference between sacrificing a chicken to God for one's sins and the sacrifice of God's son, Jesus. By the way, Hinduism has over 5,000 deities in their religion. They can tr- keep track of 500, let alone 5,000. And they can't either. Islam has their emirs, their ayatollah. Again, as spiritual teachers, but little place for Jesus Christ. Now, Mormons believe Christ to be God, but no more than they themselves who are in the process of becoming gods, which is what they teach. Jehovah Witnesses have a place for Jesus 
as a man, but they deny his deity. It's not God. None of this is acceptable to God. All of this is an abomination of idolatry and a breach of God's command. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them. For I, the Lord, am your God, and I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the father's to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Exodus 20, verses 3 and following. The coming of Jesus Christ does not present us, present to us another God as the Muslims mistakenly accuse. Jesus said to Philip, his disciple, and to all of us, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been with you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. John 14, verse 9. Now note, not two gods, not even three, if we even add or contemplate the Holy Spirit, but one God, one essence of God, one God nature, shared by three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But each one is as much holy or righteous or all-powerful or eternal as the other, thus one God. And by the way, Isaiah 9 calls Christ the eternal Father. Wow. And this one God has ordained that salvation from sin is only for those who come to God through Jesus Paul commands us as believers to pray for all men. And then he says, This pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And that's the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given at the proper time. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 5. Peter echoed the same thought in Acts 4, verse 12, as he spoke before the Jewish council. He said, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And he's referring to Jesus, Acts 4, 12. We might ask, where are these preachers getting this stuff how can they make such exclusive claims for Jesus? Well, they are simply repeating the claims of Christ himself. Let me read it for you. Jesus says, I am the way. 
I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, verse 6. Pretty exclusive, right? So well, what about the other religions in, who teach otherwise? What about the other priests who perform their atoning rituals? God answers. Jesus answers. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. The competitive religions whom Paul says, Abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they would have it to the full. And I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10 verse 8 and following. So those who come to God must come through the only door that leads into his presence and peace, and that's Jesus, his son. Anyone else is considered a thief, a robber, destined for judgment, not salvation? Well, what makes Jesus so capable to save? What is so special? Well, number one, his death paid the debt of sin for all who repent and believe. How effective were, are, animal sacrifices? You ever think about that? Even the Jewish community of old was commanded by God to come before him with the proper animal sacrifices. They were proper, but they weren't perfect. They were commanded by God, but they weren't complete. They were temporary, not eternal. They were agreeable to God, but they weren't effectual. They made a way for an audience with God on the earthly plane, but they did not did nothing for entering heaven wherein God dwells. Let me read it for you. The writer of Hebrews says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, cannot make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all. Would no longer have felt guilt for their sins. But... Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10, the first four verses. 
Contrast that with what the Bible says about the sacrifice of Christ's own body. Let me read it for you. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He's talking about the animal sacrifices. But when this priest, namely Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies who've made his footstool because by one sacrifice, again, namely himself, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10, verse 11 and following. Not only was Jesus' sacrifice perfect, but his person was perfect. The scripture says, unlike the other priests, he does not need to sacrifice, offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law, the Mosaic law, appoints a, as high priests men who are weak. Think of all the priests of the Old Testament. Starting with Aaron and going right through. The law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. Hebrews seven, twenty-seven. So Jesus can save completely because he's perfect in his person. Verse 26 says, holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. The law's penalty for sin, the wages of sin is death. Did you get that? The wages of sin is death. A life for a life. Now notice, not a sheep for a woman. Not a bullock for a man, but a perfect person for a sinner person. Jesus alone fills that bill. And the animal sacrifices were a stopgap measure, a sin covering, but not a sin eradicator. But when Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist revealed his atoning capabilities, saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away, not just covers, who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, verse 29. The sin debt is not canceled. It is paid for in full. Amen. Hallelujah. I'm so pleased that God's salvation is complete. Christ is capable to save. He is the effectual sacrifice. 
Secondly, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because, verse 25, he always lives, I'm reading scripture, he always lives to intercede for them. Wow. Verse 23 and 24 says, Now there have been many of those priests, speaking of the Old Testament days, since death prevented them from continuing on in office. They just died off because nothing special about them. But because Jesus lives forever, I'm reading scripture, and because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Hebrews 7, 23 and 24. No replacement, not ever needed. Here we observe the importance of Jesus' resurrection. Yes, he was crucified in a physical body. Yes, they nailed him to a tree. Yes, they thrust a spear in his side, though he was already dead. Yes, they took him down from the cross and embalmed him with oil and spices. And yes, they laid him in a stone-cold tomb. And they fixed a huge stone cap across the entranceway. And if that were the end of the story, it would also be the end of you and me. Hell's fires would be lapping at your door and mine, drooling for the day when you and I would take our last breath and join the devil and the demons in the pit. Paul's sober analysis is this. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. I'm reading scripture. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16 and following. I have to say, some foolish people welcome death. They do. They think death will end their physical pain or death will end their emotional and spiritual pain. Let me tell you this morning, death is not your friend. It is not the answer to your pain, be it physical, emotional, or spiritual. There's a heaven to be won and a hell to be conquered, neither of which is possible apart from resurrection. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins, including Jesus' sacrifice, is left. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Hebrews 10, verse 26 and 27. You know, the Bible calls death our enemy. It's not our friend. Let me read it for you. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put everything under Jesus' feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 
26 and 27. So you better hope that Jesus' resurrection is historically true. It's the proof that he has defeated death for his people and snatched them from the flames of hell. You know, every doctrine about Jesus is important. People want to get rid of the idea of resurrection from Jesus, thinking, well, that's not necessary. It is necessary. It's everything. Satan, the murderer, is depicted in the book of Zechariah, and this is what he writes. Then he, God, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick? Snatched from the fire. Zechariah 3, verse 1 and 2. By the way, he was dressed in filthy clothes, verse 3, which represented his sin. And God instructed the angels to take off his filthy clothes and put on clean clothes, righteous clothes, the righteousness of God. I can say to every sinner here this morning, no matter how much your sin or the degree of your sin, no matter the nature of your sin, no matter the amount of your sin, no no matter how much a child of hell you are right now, with your toes hanging over the precipice of the bottomless pit, I can tell you, even if you have the smell of smoke saturating your clothing, you're not hopeless yet. You're not a goner yet. Christ Jesus who has died more, Christ Jesus who has come out of the grave, ascended and now is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, stands ready to snatch you as a burning brand from the fire if you will renounce your sin and take his hand by faith. Isaiah says, save yourself from this evil generation. Run to Jesus quickly. Never look back. You won't regret it. Jesus is the Savior, mighty to save, and there is no other. He says there is no other. We think, especially at Christmas time, about the Savior coming. I get a little perturbed sometimes at the way the world depicts Christ. At Christmas. Oh, what a cute little baby in the manger. Yeah, that's to show his humanity that he became one with us. But let me tell you, he didn't stay the cute little baby in the manger. He grew up and became a man. The authorities of the day hated him and accused him of wickedness when he was 
sinless and without guile. And through the kangaroo court process, they condemned him, took him outside of Jerusalem, and nailed him to a cross that he might become, and they didn't think this, but that he might become the savior of all who would believe. That he died for their sins, not his own, which he had none. Well, who would do something like that? The great God who loved us from eternity and wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life saying to the world and to us as well hey he's my own she's my own they will never perish because they put their trust and their faith in me. I died their death for them. I paid their debt for them. You gotta let them go free. I was raised from the dead to grant them life for eternity. Father, thank you for such a great salvation. We bless thee for this. Started in eternity past. We weren't even there. We were just a thought in the mind of God. But since you control all of creation and all of history, whatever you thought about us, whatever you wrote about us in the Lamb's Book of Life has come to fruition because of your grace. We didn't earn your salvation. We didn't do anything to deserve it. We were sinners Bound for hell just like everybody else. Hating you with our teeth grit. Defiant. Yes, in every way. But you put all of that sin under the blood of Christ. And you paid for it. Even while we spit on you, cursed you, defiled you. Your love was so great. like a father loving a wayward child. We doing everything to be disowned and wanting to go on our way and to be free from God. Get out of my life, God. Get out of my life. But you pursued us and would not let us go. And for that, we thank you today. Now, looking back through the eyes of the cross we see your redemption we see your love and we rejoice help us to live for you and remember these things especially at this time of the year when the world all they're looking at is little baby Jesus well they must never see and obviously don't see that the baby grew up he's the king of kings and the Lord of Lords, to whom they will one day face, face to face, bow the knee and confess with their mouth that he is Lord of all. I pray that you will 
work in our hearts. Grant us that faith. Give us that repentance for your sake and our good. Amen. From the Trinity Hymnal, number 239. That's the red hymnal. Let's stand together and we'll sing. 239 in the red hymnal.
must be remembered as we sang in that song and as recorded in the scriptures that Christ came to do all of that willingly. Say, so why would he put himself through all of that? You know, the, the, talked about the thorns and being beaten with the rod and they pulled out his beard from his face and torture. Why would he put himself through that torture? He was paying the debt for your sin and my sin if we trust him. You say, well, I don't know if I trust him. Well, let me tell you. If you put no faith in Christ and what he's done for you, guess who's going to pay for your sin? You are going to pay for your sin. You either have a go-between, an intercessor, an advocate, a lawyer an intermediary to pay for your debt or you're going to pay for it yourself. That's the hell that is to be avoided at all costs. God's great love is that he sacrificed his son that we might not have a hell to experience. But you've got to believe it. You've got to accept that. And you've got to trust Christ. And by believe, I don't mean just mental assent. Oh, yeah. There was this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. And they, he got in trouble with the authorities. And the Jews nailed him to a cross. And No, that person they nailed to the cross was the son of God God sent his son for that purpose there have been many crucifixions of course Rome was famous for crucifying people but Jesus said to his disciples no man takes my life from me I lay it down of my own accord and I have authority to lay it down and to take it up again. This is not your normal crucifixion victim. This is God, God in the flesh, who came to pay a price and then to be resurrected unto life that you and I who believe in him would have everything he accomplished credited to our account. By the way, you want a great text, Romans 12, read that. It talks about crediting, how God credits righteousness from his son to us. It's marvelous. Father, we thank you for your word. Mostly we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. We serve a living Savior. He's not dead anymore. He's never been dead since the resurrection day. What is more, he's king of kings and lord of lords. All of us will have to stand before him someday. The world and all of its mockery. It's, it's wicked things that it says about God and about your son. They'll all have to stand before. And the scripture says, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It'll be true to fact. 
I pray that you'll help us to be able to give the witness of the gospel that people might come to know you in saving faith. Bless our families, Lord, that don't know you yet. Be with our children and save them, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.